Hello, welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Good morning, church. You guys are so kind to me. Thank you. It's, well, thank you. I, I love you guys, too. I'm a little hesitant to just say to one individual, I love you, but uh, <laughs> still part of the Clint Eastwood in me. <laughs> Sp- speaking of which, let me tell a story about myself to just make fun of myself. Um, it actually will segue into our message today on Moses. But uh, Jan and I were at a marriage conference back in uh, Colorado, and we were intrigued by it because it was on a dude ranch, you know. And, uh, you know, Jan grew up with horses and me not so much. And uh, so at any rate, we went on this ride, and it was, it was a great ride and everything else. And the, the guy had warned us, you know, uh, some of these horses can get easily spooked, um, you know, particularly if you do something that they, they're not used to seeing. And, you know, I'm that guy. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, whatever. Uh, so as, as we're starting out the ride, uh, we're finishing up just a little trot thing, and, and uh, I uh, think, man, it, you know, it's kind of hot. I'm going to take off my jacket. And he'd warned us about jackets, you know. So um, I don't have my hands on the reins at all, and I'm... I'm <laughs> rearranging my uh, my jacket so it'll tucking it under my leg so it won't fall off because that could spook a horse and uh anyway it fell off and and the horse does a complete 180 and and just takes off galloping and and I go flying off and let me just pause because I've already heard about 49 horse stories from people that have heard this story. So I know there's a large portion of people. I figured out that three out of 10 people have fallen off a horse. (laughs) So out of this audience, that's probably 200 people that have horse stories. So I'm good, (laughs) if you're good. And uh, so at any rate, um, but I do want to hear your horse story if you're in your 60s and you fell off a horse, you know, because bouncing under the age of 40 doesn't count. (laughs) I have bruises that you don't even, yeah, yeah. So at any rate, um, you know, hit pretty hard, my hip, my head, and uh, yeah, of course, no helmet, and, um, but the good news is that the CAT scan showed that uh, nothing was broken. Yeah. So, and they found a brain when they... <laughs> so it was pure grace. And uh, so the next day, we're, we're at the, the conference, just about 60 of us, and uh, they, they asked for a show of hands, who's going riding today? And... I, before I could stop my hand, it went up. And Jan looks at me and says, are you nuts? And, uh, and I said, yes, I am. So we went out to the corral, and, um, and I see them bringing to me the same horse I had before. <laughs> and every, all, you know, the, the, the Wranglers knew this guy is really kind of frisky, 
easily spooked, afraid of his own shadow. And I thought, no, this is the way the story goes. You got, you got to get back on the horse, but it's got to be the same horse, right? <laughs> but here's the part that relates to the message today. Um, when I got on the first day, you know, they asked me if I wanted to use the step stool like everybody was using because the stirrup's about this high. And I said, I'm not using no step stool. You know, I'm doing it like Clint Eastwood did, you know. And, and so this time, they bring out the horse named Chief. They bring out Chief, and they said, do you want the step stool? And I look at the two steps that go up, and I said, no. And I point to the ramp over there <laughs> that, that's higher than the stirrup. <laughs> because I'm, you know, I'm like this, and I'm saying, no. I need all the help I can get. And they said, do you want us to go on the same ride we did yesterday? I said, no trotting. No, no I just want the baby stroll. <laughs> just, because I'm a humbler man now. You know, this is, this is a big horse. And this is, this is a horse that could hurt me. This is a big thing. And so now we can segue to the message. We're going to spend four weeks studying the life of Moses. And there's actually about eight or 10 lessons we can learn leadership-wise from his life. We're just gonna spend the next four weeks looking at four of those. And let me say something about leadership. A lot of times when we talk about leadership, some of us who may be introverted or maybe we're not in a position that we're running a, a, a corporation or something, we dismiss ourselves as to say, I'm not a leader. And I'm using the term leadership not to disqualify anybody, but to say, we're all leaders here. Whether you're only leading your own soul in following Jesus, making requests of yourself, making decisions about what you'll do and not do, you are leading yourself. If you're a parent, you're leading a family. If you're a couple, you're leading one another submissively, one to another. If, and maybe you're involved in your neighborhood, uh, teaching children, or maybe you're involved in leading a team at your company, or maybe you're the CEO. Whatever we are, there's some lessons that we can learn. But the uniqueness of these lessons is, you know, there's a lot of lessons you can learn from various uh, online things, books, so forth and so on. These are coming from a life, from Scripture. So it pertains not only to your leadership skills, but also to your spirituality. So let's pray and let's begin. Father, we ask that you would be here with us, that you would speak to us. You know our zip code, our address, our password to our souls. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would come and speak your word in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning's lesson is about the death of a vision, which sounds morbid, <laughs> but I want to encourage you, the spin of that is it's actually the death and rebirth of the vision that you thought God gave you. So let's begin in chapter 2 of Exodus, verse 11, we're going to limit ourselves primarily to Exodus's, Exodus chapters 1 and 2. In verse 11 of chapter 2, we read, One day, after Moses had grown up, 
he went out to where his own people were and he watched them at their hard labor. Now, in studying two chapters, we don't have the time to just simply go verse by verse, uh, but most of us know a little bit about the story of Moses. When I first started attending church, I didn't. Not being a church person, I thought Jesus floated down the Nile in, in a basket. I didn't know it was Moses, so you're probably better off than I was. So the early stages of Moses' life are setting you and I up to know that there's a destiny for Moses' life. God has something big planned for Moses' life. You can call it a vision. But the vision that Moses has in verse 11, chapter 2, when he goes, goes out and sizes up the children of Israel and sees uh, their hard labor, he has an incomplete understanding of the vision. But there's several details that tell us how God is building the destiny of Moses' vision. And I'm going to give them to you right now. They're, they're, they're very human. You don't know that God is working until afterwards when you put all these things together. It says in chapter 1, verse 7, that the Israelites became numerous and that, you would think, would be a great thing. They didn't go to war with the Egyptians. They just had their own land up in uh, Goshen, and, and they just tended their sheep. And they just were uh, populating as the Israelites. Well, a new king comes along in verse 8 who doesn't know the history of Joseph and on and on of the Israelites. So he decides to deal shrewdly with the Israelites, and he makes them slaves. He puts masters over them and puts them into forced labor. Verse 14, he deals with them ruthlessly. Then he decides there's still too many of them, and he needs to stop them from having babies. So he makes the decision to kill all the male babies that are being born. And he, and he gives this order to the midwives, these Egyptian midwives who are tending the Israelites to help them have birth, uh, to give birth. And we don't know who Moses' parents were. We don't know the names of anybody, but the scripture actually gives us the names of the midwives, which is so fascinating. That's a detail the scripture wants us to know. Their names are Shifra and Pua, which if translated mean Beauty, that's a cool name, and splendid. So it's letting us know that's their character. They're, they're beautiful people, they're splendid people, and they have a decision to make. Are they going to follow Pharaoh or are they going to follow God or what they know their moral conscience to be as Egyptians? And it says that they didn't kill the, Egypt, the Israelite male babies. But they lie to Pharaoh and say, the Israelite women are really fast. It's just like they give birth just like that. There's no time. By the time we get there, already gone. And you'd say, well, is that okay to lie? Well, in these kind of cases, you have to figure out which is the worst evil 
to actually kill babies or to lie to Pharaoh and say, nope, they're just really fast. And, and these, this is one of those moral dilemmas, similar to would you lie to the Nazis about hiding Jews in your basement? And uh, I hope you know that um, if you decide to be honest Abe in that moment and say that, that blood is on your hands, if you say, yes, welcome, they're in my basement, come on in. Uh, the blood now is on your hands for telling, uh, for cooperating. So this is, they decide they fear God more than they fear Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh is the most powerful man on the planet in those days. So he now decides, Pharaoh now decides, let's not just the babies that are being born, all the male children. So he's thinking of toddlers and under they all need to be thrown into the Nile, crocodiles. And it's in this context that Moses is born. You're with me so far, right? Moses is born. And it tells us, this is a unique detail, verse 1 of chapter 2. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married to a Levite woman. Why the detail about the tribe of Levi? Because the tribe of Levi is going to become the priestly tribe. When they go out into the wilderness, that becomes the role of the Levites, letting us know that Moses, by God's destiny, is being born to that tribe of the Levites. And when he's born... The mom hides him for three months, obviously nursing him, but when she could hide him no longer, meaning getting pretty loud, pretty noticeable, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch, then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Moses, the name, means drawn out. He was drawn out from the Nile. So she takes a risk. If she continues to have this boy baby, all of her other children are at risk of being killed. She doesn't want that, but she can't just throw them into the water. So she, in a sense, obeys the law, but she gives God a chance. If there's any providence for God to do something, maybe God will do something here. And you know the rest of the story, that the princess of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter, goes down to bathe with her maidens at the Nile, and the baby is discovered. This, this young girl shows up and says, um, if you're going to keep the baby, I know someone who can nurse the baby. And the princess, no doubt knowing that this is the mother the, the, that she's talking about, uh, allows the girl, who's Moses' older sister, to go find Moses' mother and bring her. And the princess gives the baby back to the rightful mother and allows her to nurse him, raise him, until an age that she will now give him back to the princess. Wow, something big is happening in this little baby's life. 
The baby has been spared from the most powerful man in the world, but not just spared, is now going to be brought up in the palace of the most powerful man in the world. What is God up to? But God is allowing the rightful mother to raise him, obviously speaking to him in Hebrew, telling him the stories of the Hebrews, of the patriarchs, of God's work in preserving the Israelites, putting into him this destiny verbally, but he will be raised also in the courts of Pharaoh, learning all the ways of the courts of Egypt, all the protocol of Egypt, and most importantly, the power of Egypt. And so here this man, I believe, begins to have the birth of a vision. It's being raised in the sense of there's a destiny for my life. I think visions are important. I think every one of us sitting here today has a vision that God wants for our lives. Now, in scripture, you and I know that the word vision, if taken literally, which is the way it is usually in scripture, uh, it's you receiving a dream or a trance where you're seeing something with your spiritual eyes of something that God wants to, you to know, either of this life and the next life on earth or in heaven. God is speaking to you. Paul talks about being caught up uh, to, the, to, to the third heaven and seeing things that he can't even tell us about. That's a vision. Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord high and lifted up. So most of us have not had those kind of visions, but we can. The Holy Spirit is working in our lives. But culturally, the word vision is largely used as a metaphor for you as a leader seeing something that the rest of the people don't see. I love this picture, not only because I made it, but because, you know, I looked at it and I said, well, it looks kind of homemade. And I said, yeah, that's what I like about it. Um, Because who cares about all this little print? You know, this is is actually the obituary. Uh, very important, no, no offense taken if, if you're in there, but uh, <laughs> you rip it aside and say, underneath there, could there be a vision? You're seeing something that the rest of the people around you don't see. Why? Because it's not meant for them. It's meant for you. Your unique fingerprints, your unique life, where God has uniquely placed you. Visions are very, very important. They, they get us up in the morning. They make us want to live. They make us want to do something that's bigger than ourselves. They inspire us. And if you're truly a leader, they inspire people around you. They catch what you're all about. They catch what you're up to. There's a great story that you may have heard before, but it's about three bricklayers. And these three bricklayers are all laying bricks. And, and you ask the first one, what are you doing? He says, what do you think? Laying bricks. You ask, ask the second one, who's doing the same thing? What are you doing? I'm building a wall. You ask the third one, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building a cathedral. 
The third one had a vision. And when you have the vision of why you're doing these menial tasks every single day, it gets you up in the morning because I'm building a cathedral. This is going to be amazing. This is really important. Or you're just going through the mundane motions of life. What are you doing? I'm waking up. My lungs are filling with air. And I'm going to eat. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to lay down and sleep again. Maybe I'll wake up tomorrow. Maybe I won't. That's my life. That's not a vision. We need a vision that drives us, that makes us want to do things. Jan and I, as you know, we spent a time traveling to different parts of the country teaching on parenting. And that was a real interesting time for us. We still do a little bit of, of that. And uh, one of the things we would ask people, so this comes from hundreds and hundreds of people we've talked to, both mainstream and Christian, why are you a parent? And do you know what the primary reason why parents are parents? And this applies to 95% of all parents. The answer is, I don't know, we just thought it'd be cool. Now, that's not a vision. Can you imagine? You're being raised by people that just, just thought it'd be cool. Let's take a little of your DNA, a little of mine, mix it together, kind of see what we get. <laughs> so if I push back, I say, is that it? Well, no, that's, they'll usually say this. Well, no, um, I said, what, why parent? Why raise kids? Why have kids? Uh, well, I guess... I just want them to grow up and be happy. That's your final answer? Happy? You're just going to keep giving them things to make them happy. Stay quiet, happy, happy, happy. No, no, no. Uh, I, I, want them to, uh, I want them to meet someone. If they're Christians, Christians will usually say, I want them to go to a Christian college and meet a Christian uh, guy or gal, and I hope that they don't smoke, chew, or go with girls that do, and, and I hope that one day they have Christian kids, and I say, that's it? And they say, uh, well, no, we want them to go to heaven, and we want our grandkids to go to heaven. So that's the big goal, heaven. You know, they can pray the sinner's prayer when they're four years old. Psh, done. Goal achieved. Is that it? And we keep pushing them. Say, what is the purpose of parenting? If you take it back to Scripture, finally they arrive at the aha, salt and light to the world. You and I are the salt and light of the earth. And when we have children, which means we are transformational agents who have been touched by God to touch our world with the fragrance, the fingerprints of Jesus. And we raise kids for that purpose. Now that's a goal worth getting up for in the morning. So why do you feed your kid? Why do you change your kid? Why are you driving to school? Why are you soccer mom? Why do you do all these things? If the answer is, beats me. <laughs> that can be depressing. But if the answer is, I'm building a cathedral... My goal is to raise kids who change their world 
their sphere of influence in some small or great way. Now that's worth parenting for. You see? That's why each of us needs a vision. Why we're living. Now visions don't just come to you. What I've discovered in my own life, if you ask yourself, where does God speak to you mostly? It's tough because you're busy. You're much busier than the pioneers of this country. You have no margins. Think of it. Where are your margins? In the shower? In the bathroom? Uh, when you're starting your car, as soon as you, and, and, and usually there's some kind of tech toy that you're carrying along with you, checking and checking and checking. Has anybody responded to my Facebook entry? Has anyone responded to, to my uh, tweet? Has anyone responded? Has anyone sent me an email? Has anyone sent me a text? And so our, our life is filled. It's busy, busy, busy. Check the news. Check the, the TV. What's the new movie coming out? And so we fill our lives with the margins. Consequently, there's very little space for God to speak to us except maybe with a baseball bat. And sometimes when you fall off a horse, <laughs> God does get your attention. So I'm disciplining my own life to not have tech apparatus with me all the time so that God can speak to me here and there, should he want to speak to me, particularly about a vision. But when I begin to think about what God might have for me, at first it feels a little bit like I'm playing dress up. I don't know if you ever did this, maybe I'm confessing too much, but my sister and brother and I, we used to play dress up when I was real small. And there was just these clothes of my dad's in the closet and we'd try them on. And, you know, the arms were like this, and the legs were like that, and the, the hat flopped all the way down to my chin. And it, it didn't fit me. And visions are kind of like that. They, they're t if it's a good vision, it's too big for you at first. If the vision is snug, I'm going to show you, it's not a good enough vision. You can already do it. You're already doing it. We need to have something bigger. You with me so far? Okay, let's go on to chapter 2. This is the clincher, the death of a vision. In chapter 11, verse 2, we read, One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. So he already has this sense of of his tribe, his people, his responsibility. So looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked one of them, one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? You're on the same team. I don't get it. Now watch what happens. The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? 
Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Now, there's a lot here. What was he even thinking? I'm just, he didn't just stop the Egyptian. He had all the power. He's the prince. He kills him. Is this a problem with rage? Is this a problem with uh, power? Is this a problem with uh, self-importance or, or what? And then he expects that these Hebrews the next day are going to look at Moses and say, oh, you're the guy that, ah, we like you. You're our leader. But they don't see Moses as their leader at all. They have no identification with Moses, which is going to become a problem later on in Moses' life. It says in verse 15, when Moses heard, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Midian is on the far side of the Sinai Peninsula, so he's got to travel hundreds of miles to escape, but this, this is still the land of Egypt. Egypt still has its influence here. So it's likely that Moses will still die. They'll find Moses somewhere. But Moses is on the run now. He's hiding. And he's hiding from the most powerful man on the planet. It seemed like a good idea at the time. It seemed like Moses was fulfilling his destiny. He's kind of like a savior. He's kind of like a rescuer for the Israelites. If you read most of the mainstream books about Moses, that's what they'll say about him, that he was kind of this emancipator, rescuer figure that was there to be a lifeguard savior to his people. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible has ultimately a completely bigger, different vision for Moses. So my point here is that Moses was ill-prepared for the real vision, and God had to kill it. He had no idea what he was really called to do. He's not just called to kill Egyptians and set Hebrews free. That's not, that's a very small calling. He had no idea of the character of God. He had no idea about the justice of God that he's going to reveal to Moses in the law. He has no idea the synthesis of the law, which is to love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. And he has no idea that the calling of the Israelites is not just to leave Egypt and go to their own land, It's not just nationalism. There's a higher calling that Israel is ultimately called, and Moses will discover this eventually, Israel is called to be the image of God to the world, to show the rest of the nations of the world the beauty of his laws, the beauty of his character, so that the rest of the nations of the world want the God. That Israel is actually a nation to be an evangelist to the rest of the world regarding the character of God. Now, that's a big vision. So big. 
compared to the tiny little vision that Moses had. So God had to kill the vision. Now, to kill a vision, it sounds harsh. You might push back and say, well, it's not really killing it. It's just kind of retrofitting it. We'll go with yours. It's softer, gentler. But oftentimes, my experience is it feels like a a death. It really does. Have you ever been disappointed? (laughs) Have you ever been discouraged? Have you ever been depressed? It's almost always because something didn't happen that you were expecting to happen, that you wanted to happen. Call it a vision, big or small, and it didn't happen. And it was something you kind of built part of your life around, and it dies. There's a part of you that says, God, what are you doing? I was doing it for you. Right? Really feels that way. And I kind of think that if, uh, if you've never had this, you are not in secondary school yet. You're still in primary school. You're still growing and learning. And, but there's coming a day where your will and God's will are going to clash. And it's a, it's a moment of surrender or it's a moment of rebellion to say, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Then, if you look back at Scripture, you find out that a ton of the main characters of the Bible have had death of a vision. It, it's true. Look at Abraham. I mean, he had so many deaths of his vision. He gets to the land. The land can't support him. He, he, he tries to have kids. He can't have any kids. So then he tries through Hagar to have a son, Ishmael. That's not a good idea. And then God says, no, it's really going to be through Sarah. And you just got to wait. He waits for 25 more years. And then finally has Isaac. And then God says, sacrifice him. I want to know if I really have your heart. And of course, God doesn't let him sacrifice him, but it's death, death, death. God testing Abraham's heart. Look at David. David, you're going to be the king. You know the story how somebody shows up. Samuel, Samuel shows up. We'll go with Samuel. And he shows up with a horn of oil, and it anoints David. He's a kid. He's a boy. And it's a great story. Passes over all the older, more handsome, stronger brothers. And we think, ah, this is it. He's now playing harp for Saul, calming him down. He's now riding in the army. He kills Goliath. And then Saul turns. He hates David. He's trying to kill David. Death of a vision. You were anointed to be king, and now you're not. What happened, David? For the next 13 years, he, like Moses, shoveling sheep in the desert for 40 years, he, like Moses, is now on the lamb, running from Saul. And here's the deal. It's one thing to be anointed to be king. It's another thing to become the king you've been anointed to be. 
It's one thing to have a vision. It's another thing to become the person of character that fills out the vision that God has given you. And how does that happen? It's often through the testing of your will. My will or God's will. And it comes down to this, folks. Letting go. Surrender. You see Jesus in the garden. Nevertheless, thy will be done. In chapter 2, verse 21, the unlikely rebirth of Moses' vision begins. It says, Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughters and gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And that's where the vision is birthed. It's the most unlikely place. He's a foreigner in a foreign land. He's a prince who's overqualified to be a shepherd, but it's in the place of overqualification that you discover how disqualified you are for the ultimate vision you've been called to have. And God is humbling Moses, humbling Moses, humbling Moses. And there's two things that are happening. He's teaching Moses where his true resources lie. They were never in you, Moses. They're in God, right? Where's the power? And he's teaching him that there's a bigger vision than the vision you had. But he is not a pretend death. It's it's not like a paper tiger. He really dies. He doesn't know. He's shoveling sheep for 40 years, just... (laughs) 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 He's not thinking, you know, okay, 39 years, burning bush is going to show up soon. (laughs) Oftentimes, it's... The letting go is the giving up. We're not giving up on life. We're just giving up and saying, you know what? It may be. It may be. And you can just fill in the lines. We're we're dozens of people here. It it may be I never have that job. It may be I never have that child. It may be I never marry that person. It may be that I... And forever five foot seven and not six foot two. <laughs> and we, we let it go. And it's in that letting go that God now begins to give you His vision for your life. I want to bring this to a close so that we have a few moments, uh, more than just a few moments, for communion. So let me move on here. It happens while he's a foreigner in this foreign land. And I love the fact that it's a stark desert. I, I threw in some pictures that I want to show you. This is uh, Sinai from an airplane. And uh, just scroll through these quickly. It gives you a, a picture of how bleak Sinai is. It is one of the bleakest. It's beautiful in the sense that a lot of us like, this is the foothills that go to that last one, that's 
that's the very base of Mount Sinai. But you can just see how deserty, how rocky this land is where God now is beginning the rich, fertile work in Moses' life. So when a vision dies, it really feels like it's dead. That it must be God who resurrects it. And now I become humble, yielding to God and saying, you know what, I'm comfortable in my own skin. I'm comfortable in this smaller vision for my life. And I let go of whatever that thing is. It's an act of surrender. It's a letting go. It's God's will that I want and not just mine. So now as we prepare for communion, let me tell you about the greatest death of a vision. It was Jesus dying on the cross for you and I. You've never probably thought of it that way, the death of a vision. But think of how the disciples understood Jesus. Peter tries to stop Jesus from going to the cross. He actually says, far be it from you, Lord. You're not thinking happy thoughts. And Jesus says to Peter, get, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking the things of God. I need to go to, to the cross. John and, and, and James' mom comes to Jesus a few days before the cross and says, it, can my son be on your left and my son, other son be on your right when you sit on your throne in Jerusalem? That's how they thought of the Messiah. He's just going to sit on his throne and he's going to rule. And we get to rule. Now, is that the vision of Jesus? It's, it's a vision that has to die. And many people here, you had a vision of Jesus. You used to think Jesus was just a good teacher. Uh, I don't know, I don't want to get into religion, but he was just a good teacher. Or he was just uh, a miracle worker. But those visions were not big enough. Jesus was the son of God who died to take the sins of the world, including yours, upon himself. That's a big vision. And he rose again from the dead. That's a big vision. But that vision had to die. Paul says this, that we don't even think of Jesus in his, in his earthly way anymore, the way we used to think of him, because we know him is this big Christ who had a bigger vision than any of us thought of. This morning, two things as we go to communion. The ushers are going to come, and ushers go ahead and come. They're going to distrib distribute the cups, the bread, and the juice stacked on top of one another. I just would ask you to hold your portion until we've all been served. If you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to do it now. In the quietness of the moment, before we take the bread and the cup, just ask yourself, do I believe in Jesus? Do I, do I believe in this big, 
Jesus who died for me. And if you do, surrender your life to him. Commit your life to him. If you say to me, Mark, whoa, 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 I am not ready. This is my first time here, and I'm not sure you guys are all sane. I just need to come a few more times to find out. Then I would just say, let the, let the tray just go by you. There'll be another time, a month from now, that you can re-decide your decision to see if you want to make that decision. But this is a moment where we look at the big vision of who Jesus is. And then this is the other part. I want you to turn inward and think of the vision that God has called you to as a man or a woman. What vision has he called you to? And there's probably several. One, a child, a servant of God. That is the biggest vision of your life. To be able to stand one day before him and say, so glad to be with you, God. I'm here. And to hear God say, well done. Come on in. That's, that's the biggest vision. But if you're, you're a parent, God has given you a big vision to invest in your children. If you're a leader in a company or leader of something else, maybe you're a coach. That's a great big vision. Give all the parts of you in this moment to God to be a part of his big vision and let God pull it all together. And finally, if you're in a place where God has kind of killed your vision, you're in a moment of discouragement. I get it. I get it. I've been there. The timeout box. I've been there many, many times. Familiar with timeout. Let it go. Don't fight God. Let it go. And say, God, if that's not for me, it's yours. But if it is for me in some other form, a bigger vision than I ever imagined, then you do your wonder in my life. I surrender. So let's pray. Father, as we prepare our hearts for communion, send your Holy Spirit to each one of us to be speaking to us about the big vision of who you are and what you did through Jesus at the cross for our sins. And then speak to us, we pray, about the parts of our lives and and what you've called us to. And give us the courage to surrender and to say, yes, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.